Hey, it's Dan Clark, Managing Editor of New York Now. This is an exclusive bonus episode for our podcast listeners. Thanks for subscribing. And you can always find more from us online at our website, nynow.org. You might not know this, but more than 90,000 immigrants seeking asylum have traveled to New York over the past year, New York City specifically. And there's still a lot of confusion about why these people came here and what's going to happen. See, it's really unusual for that many immigrants to relocate to New York in such a short period of time. And because of that, resources from the city and the state have been stretched thin. And there's still no long-term plan for providing those migrants with basic needs, like housing. At the same time, federal rules mean they're not allowed to get a job, so they don't have much money to provide for themselves. Some say those are issues that point to a bigger problem, an immigration system in the U.S. that's long overdue for an overhaul. And there are a lot of ideas on how to get there. So a few weeks back, we invited two experts on immigration to a special panel discussion at the New York State Museum. Those were Murata Wauda from the New York Immigration Coalition and Dr. Dina Refke from the Institute on Immigration Integration Research and Policy at SUNY. We aired part of this panel on New York Now on your local PBS member station, but we're releasing the full version of the panel for our subscribers. Enjoy, and thanks again so much for listening. So I wanted to start with kind of um, immigration in New York. I think the attitude towards it has changed over the past year because we see asylum seekers coming in. So the, the situation has changed in that regard. Across the U.S., I think that it's seen differently. So I want to ask you both first, kind of how you see the attitude towards immigration in the United States right now. And then we can start with Dr. Refke. Uh, you are right, uh, Dan. There is a, um, there's always been uh, that tension between um, seeing immigrants as uh, assets and welcoming them into our communities with open arms, helping support their settlement process. And on the other hand, there are always forces that see immigrants as vilified, uh, demonized, and um, Throughout history, this pattern has been in existence. Uh, people feel um, fear. It's, they're acting out of fear um, of limited resources, of changing the status quo, uh, burdening cities and localities. But also, uh, people, on the other hand, understand that immigration, or we are Im all immigrants, that uh, welcoming refugees or people who need protection is really part of our ethos and our values as Americans. And um, it is enshrined in our humanitarian laws, in the international laws, and uh, we have an obligation to to welcome immigrants and refugees and, and asylees and provide them with fair, transparent, and due process. Very well said. Murad, what do you think? I agree with uh, Dr. Rifke and think that, you know, if you look at the spectrum of immigration in this in this country, the United States is turning 250 years old in a couple years, mm -hmm. 250 years old. And we are still considered a baby democracy because e equality, actually, we're still fighting for it. But generally speaking, didn't happen until the civil rights era in the 60s. So we're in this moment where the United States has really tried to embrace diversity through the, the enormous fight of the civil rights era to actually give people equal rights. And then if you look back, as mentioned, um, 
at the pattern of history with immigration, you end up seeing that with every ebb and flow of a new population of immigrants, you see the same, it's literally stock, it's copy and paste. Um, You see the same um, anti-immigrant narrative for either community, right? So I think as a nation of immigrants, it's quite ironic that we continue to double down in our scarcity mindset when this nation is one of the, or if not one of the richest nations in the world, and New York State is one of the richest states in the nation, um, for us to continue to have that mentality of, well, we, I don't have enough, how are we? It's not about, I think we have to remove ourselves and think about our global community and how are we showing up in that moment to offset some of this negative stuff that we're seeing um, nationally, but also across the state that just recently we started seeing. Right. Do you think it's, it's for both of you, do you think it's more a fear of scarcity or more a fear of the unknown? That's where I get lost in this a lot of the time is when um, I hear people echo anti-immigrant sentiments, but they don't really know anything about kind of the immigration that's coming in and why those immigrants are coming here and what those immigrants are going to be doing here and, and what the status is of them. Um, where do you think that fear comes from? And we can start with Dr. Rafi again. Um, It's complex. It's a very complex situation. And throughout history, again, we've seen this phenomena intersect with race, obviously. So racial diversity is very threatening uh, to some people that it will change the demographic makeup of the country. So you'll see reaction to people of color becomes very different from the reaction to um, Europeans or refugees from Europe. Um, And so there is fear of scarcity of resources, but there is also fear of of that demographic change, which is already is happening and is projected to keep happening as we go, as we move forward. Uh, Murad, just on that same question, um, you and I spoke last week for New York Now about this issue, about immigration, asylum seekers, everything like that. how do you think politics gets into this? Because sometimes I feel like when we talk about this immigration debate, people are often just echoing things that other people have said and you know, not looking into it and don't have the facts of the situation. Do you think it's just as driven by politics as fear? Or I guess those two things are probably pretty intersectional. I think politics is driven by fear yes. in general. So I think the way in which we see uh, lightning rod candidacies actually take shape is through uh, eating at people's fears so that they actually feel a connection to the candidate who is saying the fearful things. Um, And I think the more it gets said, the more it gets mainstreamed, and then that just becomes fact when it's not. Mm. Um, And what we've seen is, you know, I wanna go back to two years ago, not last, this past year, Um, but the New York Immigration Coalition welcomed uh, several thousand Ukrainians to New York. Um, We anticipated 6,000, 30,000 came, and I think that no one actually is paying attention to that community specifically here in New York because they are white immigrants. Um, And as you get further from whiteness in your immigration journey, the more challenging it is for you to find the supports you need, to find the services you need, to find resources. Um, Thus far, we've not seen the investment that has been made for other communities, made for the recent arrivals uh, who have come over the past year. And we continue to see this kind of um, nexus between 
the fear mongering that we hear and people actually running for election, right? Um, so if you look at uh, County Executive Steve Newhouse, no one would know he's running for, he's the Orange County uh, County Executive, no one would know he's running for re-election because he's constantly putting out these really horrible press releases about how horrible, um, you know, what's happening with the resettlement in his area is, um, and that, you know, safety and danger and all these things, which if you just did a simple Google research tidbit and like went to any in acad academic institution, you would just n naturally see that um, immigrants actually make communities safer. And immigrants actually give uh, local economies a strong surge of support, and then they become the backbone of it. Um, in New York City, during COVID, I think what everyone thought that we were going to have like this huge economic collapse. And while the economic engine was slightly hurt, what actually sustained our economy, not just in New York City, but across the state, was immigrant small businesses. And a lot of frontline workers who and were. And the frontline workers who were immigrants. Yeah. Um, healthcare workers, people delivering food, people still working on the farms, harvesting the food we eat, nourishing us. Um, so I think for us, I think the, the fear is very based in ir irrationality as opposed to fact or rational um, any rational thing that you can point to, it's just a talking point that then gets picked up and mainstreamed and then continues, you know, what's the saying? You know, you could say a lie and it runs a million miles. If you say the truth, it doesn't go very far. I think that's the situation we continue to find ourselves in. I think so too. And I think as we talk about this, there a lot of this is kind of snowballed by a lot of misinformation and a lot of bias too that kind of couples in and, and brings it all together. Before we kind of narrow down into the asylum seeker conversation about it, Dr. Refke, I wanna ask you just on a wholesale big vision, this is a big question, um, how does this change? You know, how do you think the US ever gets to a point where a new population of people immigrates here and we all just say, great, welcome? Well, I think it's not going to be, unfortunately, in our lifetimes, but Every research says that the younger generation are more progressive, are more tolerant uh, than the older generation. So uh, we are hopefully evolving into this uh, ideal state where we welcome everybody and we don't look at people uh, based on their racial makeup but on the merit uh, that they have. So I'm optimistic that we will get to this point. Um, I mean, the statistics tell us that uh, by 2020, uh, I think 2050, this country is going to be a minority majority. And so um, it, the demographic changes are also going to, um, to change the equation, I believe. In New York, I feel like we, as a population of the state, sometimes view immigration differently because of our, you know, we have the Statue of Liberty in our harbor. We have Ellis Island there, as we just saw. Um, I was a public school student in central New York who got the opportunity to go to the Statue of Liberty as a, as a child and learn about it and why that's so important. And I was traveling at the time with a group of students from Costa Rica who were exchange students for us. And just sharing that culture was really important to us at the time, just kind of exchanging ideas. As we look at um, this on a much grander scale right now, with the asylum seekers coming into New York, 
We don't know how many have come in over the past year. I think you had told me last week maybe 100,000, somewhere around there. It's a big population, and in some ways, we can see this play out in real time, how policy directly affects these people and what we can do to make them feel more comfortable here um, as asylum seekers. Uh, Murad, I want to go to you first on this. Uh, I asked you this last week. How, um, how do you think the state and the city have done with the situation so far? I think, um, you know, we started actually receiving people back, I would say, in March and April directly from the southern border who were being bused initially to Washington, D.C., and then were being supported to come to New York City because that's where their final destination was going to be. Um, and we immediately met with the city and said, hey, this is happening, and um, you might start seeing an uptick in individuals arriving at the shelter system. We just want to make sure that the frontline staff understand that these people have, you know, these are their rights, and, you know, this is the type of support that they need. Um, and then fast forward to August 5th, we're almost at the, you know, one-year mark of the first bus coming to New York from Texas. And, you know, between uh, June and August, we asked the city to do three things. One is expand, emergency expand the shelter system, um, invest in emergency legal services, and then invest in uh, community-based supports that will support people in actually becoming self-sufficient so that they're not in need of city support anymore. Um, we got one of the three immediately, which was emergency expansion. And I give credit to the city. And I think that uh, sometimes it's easier to criticize than actually give the credit. So I'm giving them the credit for being able to do that. I think that they had a, they've had a number of missteps that were easily avoidable um, and actually aren't taking the perspective of how do we solve this issue for the long term mm. and how do we make sure that we're supporting people but also doing it in an economical fashion, right? And I think our recommendations are rooted in what we also see uh, are issues for historically unhoused people in New York City. Um, and I think the city doesn't like that because that is an entire industry, right? It's people who, uh, institutions, private institutions that are thriving in this moment. And for us, we see it more economical to actually support people into getting to permanent housing than actually keeping them in shelter. Um, one thing I would say uh, on the state level is that, you know, we immediately started advocating to the state when we started seeing the numbers actually increase significantly. And to the credit of the governor, she made additional funding available, right? Um, and that was immediate. And then as we went into the budget season, she made an more money available to support the city in their efforts, but also um, nearly quadrupled immigration legal services funding, which, you know, if you've been following that fight, it started off, um, even the fight to create the Office of New Americans, which manages the money and makes sure it uh, is spent appropriately, has been a almost decade fight, right? And for us to get to this point where we're, we're having that level of investment is a huge victory. I think people are doing the whole, I'm gonna stand back and wait and see what happens and plug in where I can. And that's not the leadership we need in this moment though. We need people to come to the table to actually have really creative and innovative ideas that are going to be outside of the box because this is what the moment calls for and we're not seeing that. Mm. Dr. Refke, I want to ask you the same question, but also um, kind of ask you, in a situation like this where we have a lot of immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers coming to New York, is this kind of the typical thing that happens is 
they come, we scramble and kind of figure it out? Or are there more permanent systems in place? Or should there be? Yeah, I, I think then there is really a uh, consensus now that we have a broken system, a broken immigration system. We have a, um, a system of asylum that is not designed to accommodate mass immigration. It really is a system that is designed for uh, individuals who are facing persecution based on the religion, race, nationality, uh, political opinion, or uh, membership of a social group on a case-by-case -case basis. But then when they when that system, it becomes the only channel for people to mass uh, to migrate. And so in the absence of any alternative, that system crumbled. It really fractured and disintegrated. And it could not accommodate because it's not set up and designed for that. We need an alternative system uh, that really uh, policies that are driven by humanitarian um, needs, by um, considerations of the dignity and respect for people, and a system that accommodated labor and um, family migration, uh, because we need them. They need us, and we need them. There is a massive shortage of jobs in this country uh, that can only be filled by um, immigrants and people uh, coming into this country, but we are not, you know, we're making them uh, wait for a year to get authorization to work. And so um, there is a need to uh, rebuild the system, and it takes a whole government approach. We need the federal, the state, and the local to work together to create coordination, uh, organization, efficiency at the border, and really draw on the refugee system, which is much more organized. Um, it's much more uh, endowed with resources to settle people who come, support them, uh, provide what they need need in terms of employment, education, housing, and, and um, uh, health services. So we need to fix the system. If we don't, then we're always going to be dealing with this emergency situation. We don't have plans. We don't have systems to accommodate. And we're always going to be really making people more vulnerable and adding to the uh, people who do not have legal pathways to citizenship and settlement in this country. Some people will say that this situation that we're in right now is unique because um, New York maybe wasn't expecting this massive influx of people to come to the state and that a line should be drawn at some point in terms of offering services or housing people and, and things like that. Um, what do you think of that view of this? Should there be a limit? Should there be a line where we say, okay, we're done? I mean, if we have an emergency plan in place and we have a system that is uh, in those countries of origin really coordinate the passage of, of uh, asylees or migrants uh, from their countries to this country and coordinate that process before they come here, uh, and a system that responds to our economic needs. Mm. Uh, that will avoid the chaos and the vulnerability and the exploitation that we're seeing right now. 
just one more question for you before I go to Murad on the work authorization um, that you had mentioned. So it is a year, and I know that the governor and the mayor have been asking the White House to kind of shorten that. Can you talk about why that's so important for these immigrants to be able to work as they are awaiting their decisions? Right, so we wanna avoid them going into the informal economy, which is exploitative, which really um, takes advantage of them. We also know that it's the human dignity to to be able to, uh, it's a matter of dignity, to be able to earn your own living. Yeah. Um, as the mayor of New York City said, they don't want our free food, they don't want our free housing, they want to work. The first question they ask, can we work? And, and we need them to work. So um, we don't know where the disconnect is. You know, just from a stick, strict logical perspective, you know, people who make that journey, it's not an easy one. So they're not coming here for anything easy, you know? It, it just, of course they would wanna work, you know? Some people say they don't, and of course they would. Um, Murad, I wanna go to you kind of from a, more of a policy legislation perspective in a little bit, but first, just moving forward as the state continues to respond to this, um, where do you think there are areas, uh, avenues for um, making this smoother moving forward? Is it more housing? Is it just that work authorization, or is it something else? I think it's everything. And I think the bigger piece here is that everyone mistakenly calls this a migrant crisis that we're dealing with when it's not. It's actually the state and the and our different regions in New York have been dealing with an affordability crisis coupled with a housing crisis, right? So that in itself has been something that we have been talking about for a long time and ignored on, right? So when people started seeing their eggs going up to $8, right? It was like, what the hell is happening here? No one was paying attention to the affordability crisis that people were screaming about. Like if you can't buy a my mom always told me when I was a kid, if you don't know the price of a gallon of milk, you are not actually in tune to reality. I use that same exact one. And so you and my mom must be good friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I bring that to our elected leaders and tell them, what is the price of a gallon of milk today? And I can tell you that many of them do not know. So for me, it's, it's always going back to like the, the folks, we will be known about what we've done in our country, in our states, in our local towns, and our legacies will be how we treated those who are at the margins. Mm -hmm. And I think for folks who are in power, they need to understand what is happening on the ground. So when we talk about um, what is the path forward, the path forward is a path for everyone. This is not uh, a migrant situation. This is not uh, you know, a historical New Yorker situation. This is an everyone situation. And instead of seeing this as a challenge, which people have continued to talk about it in that regard, it's an opportunity. We have over 5,000 agricultural jobs that have been vacant. Our fields are going uh, are not gonna be harvested. We have over 10,000 uh, hospitality jobs. We have so many jobs that are just languishing across the state. And instead of being like, hey, we have over 100,000 people here who wanna you know, find work, um, we're seeing it as like, oh, well, I don't, I don't wanna deal with this. Um, the solution is a statewide coordinated effort that is in partnership. I think that's a key word, in partnership between the federal government, the state, and localities, with the S, because localities, m multiple 
localities, not one locality dictating to other localities what to do. Um, in partnership with uh, the community-based organizations on the ground who are doing the services and have been doing them without any support. So making sure that the ecosystem is there and strong to support however many people need the support, right? And I think when we move away from the scarcity mindset and actually think about it, $1.8 trillion of our state economic uh, well-being is already in large part to a quarter of the population. Imagine if we were able to invest a little bit more to support new folks who, in New York City, by the way, um, the adults who enter the shelter system are actually only staying 30 to 45 days. They're not staying long-term. And we want them to get work authorization as quickly as possible, but also understand that people will work as they see fit to make sure that they're able to support themselves. And people do quickly get a job in the informal economy and then start supporting themselves to rent a room or get a shared apartment and move forward that way. So this is already a community that's illustrating to the general public. We And they've told this to me when I was welcoming buses at Port Authority. They were like, we don't want your help. We want to work. And that was several thousand people. The first thing that they asked for, extremely tired, extremely exhausted, but with a glimmer of hope in their eye of just saying, I just want a job. And we also have a new installment of our Civic Series New York and on our website, focusing entirely on immigration. So you can find that and a lot more online at nynow.org.